The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. Good morning, everyone. A little congested today, so I hope that's not distracting uh, if I have to grab a drink of water or something, but... Hopefully you'll tune, tune it out eventually. Um, yeah, our scripture reading for this morning is a two-parter. So first we'll be in Exodus 20, and then we'll be in Philippians chapter 4. So please stand with me as we read God's word. This is Exodus 20, verses 15 through 17. You shall not steal... You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And then Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You can be seated. Today we're looking at the 8th through 10th commandments. So we're speeding up our pace a bit because we've been doing one commandment a week. Uh, And next week we're really going to speed up our pace because we're going to be looking at Exodus chapters 21, 22, and the first nine verses of 23. So obviously we won't have time to read that verse by verse within our gathering next week. So I'd advise you to be familiar with it from your reading in the middle of the week. So that, that was chapters 21, 22, and the first nine verses of chapter 23. Uh, but this week, we just have three verses here in Exodus 20. So let's pray before we get started. Father God, it is good to be among your people this morning. And we know that your goals for us and what you're up to in our lives by your Spirit is much, much greater than what we think we're about right now. We thank you for that. And Lord, we pray that that wouldn't just be the case in our midst, but we also want to pray for other churches in Plainfield this morning. We thank you for Plymouth Congregational Church, God. We ask that they would be blessed through our presence in this building. And we ask that as they gather this morning, your gospel would go out in power and that you would change lives in that gathering. Lord, we pray similar things at Crosswinds Church, at Friendship Baptist, at Plainfield CRC, at Grace Point, at The Compass, at Peace Lutheran Church, and many others. God, we pray that these churches would be gospel-centered. We ask that they would treasure your word. We ask that the community in their midst would be authentic and full of prayer And we ask that you would be transforming lives to look more like Jesus. Lord, bind us together as your people 
in this community. Bind us together in unity and in truth. And God, as we look at the Ten Commandments again this morning, we keep in mind the words of the psalmist who said, I will walk in freedom, for I have devoted myself to your law. God, I ask that that would be the cry of our hearts this morning, that we would see the freedom that lies for us in these words and that we would take hold of it. So do that work in our midst this morning, we pray. Amen. Now, included among any list that you would make about the greatest American novels, surely you would include F. Scott Fitzgerald's tragedy, The Great Gatsby. It's set in the 1920s in Long Island, and the story really explores the extent to which people will go to achieve the American dream, and also the depths to which they'll fall when their desires prove unattainable. So really across all characters of the book, it starts with optimism and daring ambition, but then quickly descends into the very deeds prohibited by the last five of the Ten Commandments. Theft, lying, adultery, murder, and underneath it all, coveting what belongs to others. One haunting image from that book is how the incredibly wealthy and likable and good-looking Jay Gatsby, a guy who should be able to get anything he wants, he regularly stands outside his house at night looking across the bay at a green light. It's coming from the window of the woman he desired, but who had married another. And the narrator tells us, Gatsby believed in the green light, the euphoric future that year by year recedes before us. Sure, it eluded us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow we will run faster, stretch out our arms farther, and then one fine morning... And so we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. Humanity, it seems, doesn't change, whether it's in ancient Israel or in New York in the Roaring Twenties or in our hearts today. The way that we obsess over what we want can utterly ruin what's best about us. And just because we live in a land of opportunity with seemingly endless upward mobility, it doesn't mean that the things that we pursue will make us happy or that we'll ever be satisfied enough to stop wanting more at the expense of others. And that green light across the bay, whatever that represents for you, it still remains elusive. Our gracious God knows this about us, and, and that's why he revealed in his law a better way to live, a way that actually leads to human flourishing. So let's look again at the nature of his kingdom that's unpacked for us in this legal code, and it's uh, verse 15 starts by telling us that his kingdom is a place where there is no stealing. No stealing. You shall not steal. That's straightforward enough. There's no object to that sentence. So we're left to wonder, steal what? And the answer seems to be anything. Our minds, if we think about stealing, we probably think about kids in a convenience store, maybe stuffing some snacks into their pocket, hoping that they're out of view of the camera. Maybe we think about employees who uh, take merchandise out the back door when their boss isn't looking. Maybe we think about white-collar embezzlement schemes. But when you think in those categories, then um, well, we probably all recognize the value of this law, and we would probably all also say that we're pretty successful at obeying it. But we should look a little bit closer and think a bit harder to see the full variety of ways in which stealing can happen. 
For example, in the next chapter of Exodus, we're explicitly told that in ancient Israel, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. So, no kidnapping, no sex trafficking, certainly no slavery, such as what happened in this country between 1619 and 1865. So hopefully we can all get on board with that no stealing people prohibition also. That seems an obvious one, but let's think about some even more subtle forms of stealing. And some of these are how powerful people tend to steal from the powerless. So uh, charging an exorbitant interest rate that people agree to only because they don't understand or because they're in desperate and immediate need. Or if you're a boss or a supervisor, or maybe you've hired a contractor, and then you don't keep your word about the compensation that that worker was due. And the Bible speaks very harshly about that sort of theft. James chapter 5 says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Or, even if you're just fine being silent when people aren't discovering or understanding the benefits to which they're rightfully entitled, that is a form of stealing. Another form of the powerful stealing from the weak, if government officials seize private property when there's not a true public need, that can be stealing, just like it was when Wicked Ahab seized Naboth's vineyard for his own pleasure. That's in First First uh, Kings twenty-one. And the powerful can also steal through sales techniques, right? The techniques that are misleading, or maybe that put a lot of pressure on people who are confused or intimidated. But it's not just the rich or the fast talking or the the powerful who who break the eighth commandment. Plagiarism is a theft. It's stealing the work of another and calling it your own. Misleading reporting in order to make ourselves look good or to avoid negative consequences, that's often theft. Uh, If it's not the theft of money that flows through the reports, it's at least the theft of honor for successful work that you're not actually due. Laziness and then expecting others to take care of you, that can be stealing the time and energy of those around you. And many forms of stealing are easy to justify because we don't really see the person who's affected by it. We we can't put a face to who we're stealing from, like cheating on taxes. It's just the government, right? We can convince ourselves they don't really need our money anyway. But Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And those dollar bills say the United States of America on them. Now, you're not responsible for all the corruption that may occur to your, with your dollars when they're in government hands, but you are responsible for stealing resources from these leaders who the New Testament says God has sovereignly appointed for your good. Insurance fraud is theft. You may feel like, well, you really need the money. What does a big corporation care? But that corporation provides income and services for many households, and you are hurting people by your theft. At work... Do you steal in small ways because no one will notice anyway? Squandering resources that you've been entrusted with or maybe taking sick days when you're not really sick 
or borrowing supplies or stealing time from your employer by spending much of your day on social media or your phone, even if everyone does it and your boss doesn't seem to mind, we need to hold ourselves to a higher standard. Ephesians 6 tells us to render service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord. And ultimately, it doesn't matter if we're stealing from someone that we know or someone that we don't, or we're stealing from an individual or a corporation or a government, or whether we're stealing from someone who deserves it or not. It doesn't matter because ultimately all theft is theft from God. He owns everything. And if he hasn't given you something right now, despite your honest, hardworking efforts to obtain it, despite your prayers asking him for it, well, then you're to understand that it's not for you right now, and then to trust God with that. One Bible scholar noted that in Genesis, Jacob stole from his brother and his father two things that he was ironically promised by God anyway, the the birthright and the blessing, and we're all kind of like that. We're coveting things that are promised to us anyway. We've been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfailing, kept in heaven for you, and the things that we long to steal will be the paving stones of the city of God. That's a cool thought, isn't it? But our impatience seeks the right things in the wrong way because we don't really believe in the inheritance to come. It feels too airy-fairy to us. It feels almost like a consolation prize rather than the lasting main event that it really is. A friend of mine was asked by his son, Dad, why do so many people who say they believe in Jesus then go on to live such godless lives? And my friend said to him, well, it's because they don't really believe in heaven. And so they think they need to get it all right now. And I wonder if the same is true for us. What form of stealing do you sometimes excuse? What might it look like to turn a corner away from that? To take your obsession off of getting and make your obsession giving because you're confident of your inheritance that is imperishable and unfading and kept in heaven for you. That's what the good news of Christ does for us. Ephesians 4.28 says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Why? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. That's what the gospel does in our lives. Let's move on to the ninth commandment, where really the emphasis on not stealing is going to continue. Because in the sixth commandment, we were told, don't take your neighbor's life. In the seventh commandment, we were told, don't take your neighbor's wife. In the Eighth Commandment, we were told, don't take your neighbor's stuff. And here in the Ninth Commandment, we're told, don't take your neighbor's reputation. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, it does mean don't lie, but the imagery, the specific imagery used is borrowed from the courtroom. You know, in the ancient world, they didn't have fingerprinting. They didn't have uh, DNA technology for evidence. They didn't even have security cameras or electric lights at all. And that meant that the witness, the witnesses, their testimony was all the more important. And that's why in Deuteronomy 19, it says that in the courts of Israel, they shouldn't re- rely on just one witness. And it says that the judges shall inquire diligently. And if a witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant 
to do to his brother, so you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. So it's a big deal, false testimony. And here in this commandment, we're meant to see that stealing the truth from others can harm them, even when it's done outside of court. So what does that look like when we're stealing the truth from others? Well, gossip is an insidious way that we just casually and thoughtlessly spread half-truths. And um, it's, it's a habit, and it's, it's hard not to do it because it, it can feel so good. Proverbs 18.8 says, The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. But when we pass along an un- unsubstantiated truth, we're telling lies. Or even if we're certain that it is the truth, does it need to be communicated to that person and to all the people that they may tell? Do they have a need to know? Would you want that level of information about you to be passed along if you were the subject of conversation? So if not, then you're stealing the reputation of the person being discussed. It's not yours to take. And we can also bear false witness by retelling our own stories in a way that leads people to condemn others. But we're actually leaving our, out our own contributions to the problem. Exodus 23.1 says, you shall not spread a false report. And we do this more than we realize. We talk about our problems with friends and family, and gradually they get the sense like, okay, uh, this person in your life is really a problem or is hurtful or difficult or offensive, etc. But, you know, the one common denominator across all of our problem relationships is us. And you forget to mention your poorly chosen words in response or your goading or your negligence or your lack of holiness, how that also colored the situation. We need to be honest about that. It doesn't mean that there aren't real jerks in your life, but condemning them through filtered storytelling isn't God's way and it's not ultimately helpful to you either. Slander is another form of false witness that's happening when we revile and defame people. Leviticus 19.16 says, You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, even if they have done something wrong or foolish. When we try to bring about change through the, the public assassination of their character, that's not honest. Because the truth is, we don't know their heart motives. And this is still a person created in the image of God. So be careful when you're talking about recent happenings in your workplace or in your neighborhood. And not slandering also means that our social media accounts should look very different from those of unbelievers. God's people should not be maligning politicians or celebrities or public figures of any kind. I mean, we can raise awareness by speaking soberly about the bare facts of a situation or a statement or an action, but if we represent someone in a manner that we wouldn't if they were right across the table from us, or if we interpret their character or their motives as if we were God who could see all, that's not truthful. And if there's spite involved, then that violates the sixth commandment as well. Bearing false witness even shows up in our unplanned emotional reactions to things. I I was personally convicted this week um, to see how when I shame my children, that's communicating something false to them about themselves. 
And it doesn't even have to be in the words that I use. Uh, it's often found more often just like in the tone, in my tone of frustration and disbelief, sometimes almost bordering on disgust. And if I could somehow ask my boys, you know, to repeat back to me what they heard in adult words, uh, I fear that they might say something like, uh, Dad feels like I'm just someone who's always in his way. Or I'm ridiculous and a disappointment is a son. And of course, I would never want to communicate any of those messages to them because those are lies, right? The, the truth is that they are beautiful works of creation who reflect the glory of God. Sometimes they mess up either because of sin or simply because they're still growing in wisdom, but God forbid that I would ever communicate something negative about their value in my reaction. So that's one way that I'd be very glad if you could pray for my parenting, even as you're reflecting on the ninth commandment for yourself this week. Let's think about two more ways that we're not truthful, that are a little more subtle. One is silence. In Leviticus 5, the people are warned against any tendency to stay silent when you know that a matter is being judged and you have information and you don't come forward to speak. Now, hopefully all of us here, if it was a legal situation, we, we would speak out. But what about when it's just a matter of reputation? Right When uh, in the workplace, a group of friends in a social setting is unfairly throwing someone under the bus, how do you respond? Do you say, well, actually, guys, let's, let's hold back judgment on that because such and such might actually be the case? Or do you stay silent because you just want to stay in with the cool crowd? That silence is a false witness, and it's a violence against someone's reputation. Or sometimes we might stay silent about a destructive thing that's happening because, well, we don't want to slander, but it's actually a situation in which you should speak up and in that way defend those who are being hurt by this person. So this takes wisdom to recognize, like, is this a situation where being truthful means speaking up or being truthful means not slandering? You know, you have to pray about that at times. Or here's another situation. We're being praised or complimented for something that actually wasn't really totally our doing. Maybe the accomplishment was mostly the work of another person. You were only partly involved. Do you give the other person or persons the credit they deserve? Because if not, then you're lying and you're stealing someone else's reputation. The other subtle way that we bear false witness is through flattery. Do you praise someone either in an exaggerated way or maybe even in a true way, but for the wrong motives, to get something. Proverbs 26 says, Whoever hates disguises himself with his lips and harbors deceit in his heart. When he speaks graciously, believe him not, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred be covered with deception, his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. So flattery is using good words like a weapon to get your own way, and so it's deceitful. In all of these situations, we have to take our words seriously, and we have to invite the Holy Spirit into those dark parts of our hearts. Jesus in Matthew 12 says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now, if you haven't noticed yet, 
when we sin, we never break just one of the commandments. No one ever murdered or committed adultery or stole without lying about it. And the motivation for sinning against others is always that we're worshiping something other than God. So then we're breaking the first and maybe the second commandment also. And this 10th commandment that we're going to look at shows us even more that interconnectedness of all the commandments. And this, this one is a law unlike any other. You know, in, um, if you look at other ancient law systems from the Near East, let's say Hammurabi's Code, for example, of course you're going to find similar laws like murder, theft, adultery, you know, false testimony in court. You're not necessarily going to find honor your father and mother, but there is a law against assaulting them. So... Uh, but what you don't get in these other law codes is anything that really gets after the thoughts and intentions of the heart, like this 10th commandment does. You shall not covet. I mean, how could other nations have a law like that, right? There'd be no way to enforce it. Only ancient Israel had God himself as their king and as their ultimate judge. And as we who have also been redeemed out of slavery and brought into his good kingdom, as we're learning to live like his people, this 10th commandment is going to show us where all sin begins. And I hope you'll see this, that we don't ultimately have a problem with our behavior or a problem with our words. We might have a problem, but ultimately, we have a problem with our hearts. And that problem is as old as when Satan told Eve that she could be like God if she ate the fruit. It's as old as when Cain killed his brother because he was jealous of him. So James chapter 1 says this about all sin, that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So our desires for things, things that we don't have, things that we can't have, that is the source of temptation towards all sorts of sin. Verse 17 says specifically, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. You can see it's really comprehensive in scope um, of what others have that we shouldn't desire. It could be stuff, it could be relationships, it could be their circumstances. Now, we may not have servants or oxes or donkeys, so you can sub in whatever you like, you know, you shall not covet your neighbor's car or their thoroughbred horse or, or dog or whatever, um, or his employees. You shall not think about how your life would be better if you had a spouse like so-and-so because, all oh, that spouse is so caring and so good with kids and so good-looking or fun. You shall not longingly wish you had your neighbor's house, you know, the one with all the latest decorative touches and remodeled bathroom, and ooh, that sunroom really adds some space. We're a, so- we're a society that, that just kind of is built on coveting, if you think about it. All of our <laughs> advertising and our motivations is about getting the next best thing. And coveting is the sin that drives and that grows most of our social media browsing, right? You're checking up on other people, seeing what they have. And I I wish I still looked hip at my age like that friend does. Wish I had their taste or their budget for clothes. I wish my kids were successful like theirs. I wish we could go on vacations like that 
what I wouldn't give to have a retirement portfolio like this or that person. I wish I could advance in my career like this person. I, if I only had the opportunities that so-and-so had, then maybe life would be easier. And so we covet as easily as we breathe. The Apostle Paul repeatedly says that covetousness is idolatry. It's a form of false worship. Your emotions are driving you into a way of life that's centered on something that's not God. And so it's as good as if you're bowing down to a golden idol. And then out of your heart and your speech and your actions flow bitterness and resentment and deceit of those who are chasing after created things rather than the creator. And we've all sinned in this way. But you have to realize that you can't leave it unaddressed because it will kill your soul. Coveting will kill your soul. You have to take on a lifestyle of continual repentance, inviting God into these spaces of your heart where the desires are percolating and then they control your actions. If you're not inviting God into that, then maybe the gospel isn't real. And Ephesians 5 says, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is, understand it, saying persistently, unrepentantly, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So the stakes are high. But wait a minute, we might say, isn't it just natural for people to seek after things that they don't have? Can't I have ambitions? Yes, but the devil is in the details, literally. I mean, wanting what belongs to others, that is a sure way to imitate Satan. Now, it's one thing to seek after good things because, hey, I, I have ability to strive for this or that, and um, I'm happy, but um, here's another opportunity. I'm going to take it to the glory of God. That's one thing when you're working from a position of thankfulness, but it's a whole other thing to have your ambitions driven by bitterness and disappointment and comparison. So do not covet is a negative instruction, but if we were to put that positively, we would say that the command is be content. Be content. That's what this command tells us to do proactively, and the New Testament is all about reinforcing that message. 1 Timothy 6, godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Craving, that's a, it's a great summary of what coveting feels like. Craving leads you away from the faith. It can pierce you with many pangs. So will you live a life that's growing up in thorns because of the, the seeds of covetous craving? Or will you live a life that's nourished into a good harvest by the healthy soil of contentment? Contentment is a path to freedom. It's, it's not restrictive. Contentment doesn't mean somehow just 
shutting off your desires, shutting down, pretending that you're happy when you're not actually. And uh, I'm really thankful to have heard how Kevin DeYoung articulated this. He emphasized that contentment doesn't mean you don't have desires. It doesn't mean that you don't cry out or moan to God when suffering comes. Because both the pursuit of good goals and crying out to God out of pain, those are positively modeled for us throughout Scripture. Contentment doesn't mean stop feeling. Contentment doesn't mean stop wanting good things. Because it's not Christianity. It's actually Buddhism that says all desire is bad. But in fact, our problem as Christians isn't that our desires are too big. It's that they're too small. And we'll come back to that thought in a bit that God actually calls us to have much bigger desires than the stuff or the relationships or the circumstances that we tend to covet. When we covet, our whole perspective is controlled by one of three things. So the most obvious is comparison to the people around us. We see people who have something we don't and we covet and we don't understand why they should have such peace and prosperity and enjoyment with those things when they seem unattainable to us. Another source of dissatisfaction is comparison with the past. We essentially covet our own past situations or those of the generation before us. You know, if only we could recreate that experience. Maybe it's the 1950s or 1980s or 90s, whatever your golden age is. If you could just get back to those, those days, then we could be happy. Others are discontented because they have some sort of ideal in their mind. that They believe that this should be a basic right for all people. And so if that can't happen, then happiness just feels impossible. Like everyone should be able to have a house of a certain size. Or, man, if I don't have a body of a certain appearance, then life isn't worth living. Or, or the ability to travel. Or a certain kind of family. So even if we're not actively comparing to someone specific in our lives, that doesn't mean that we're not coveting in how we grumble about our own circumstances and carry around bitterness because of a perceived lack of what we're obsessed with. So what are those tendencies in your own life? Have you ever wished that your life was different? Have you ever grown bitter at someone who had different opportunities than you? What lack or absence of a good thing, or what comparison with others drives dissatisfaction in your own life. Think about that. You feel trapped there, wondering, well, how could I ever not be dissatisfied in that way? In Christ, we're not trapped in lives of coveting. There's a lot of good news to hear about how the Holy Spirit wants to sever the root of this sin in your lives. Did you know that you can actually, as you trust Christ, you can grow in contentment? Scripture uses that language. In uh, Philippians 4, Paul is thankful for the church in Philippi's concern that um, he may not have enough resources. He's thankful for their gifts. But at the same time, he wants them to know that he's, he's not overly concerned. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That last verse, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, that's, that's a verse that's sometimes taken out of context, right? It's not a verse to put up 
in the gym when you're lifting weights. It's not a verse that's, that's promising that if you just believe enough, you're going to be able to climb Mount Everest. No, the context is contentment. Contentment is the thing that you can do through him who strengthens you. Joy in any circumstance. When facing plenty and abundance, you know, you seem to have success at work, you have a beautiful marriage, wonderful kids, a comfortable lifestyle. When that's the case, you can do all things through Christ. You can rest in what you have and not grow dissatisfied and distracted and hunger for the better thing. And you can also not need the good things that you have. You can leave them in God's grip instead of worshiping these gifts and squeezing them to death with your fearful control. You can do that through Christ who strengthens you. And when that's not the case, when you're facing hunger and need, you're lonely, your relationships feel poisonous, none of your efforts seem to be bearing fruit, life feels chaotic and difficult, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You can trust him in the darkness and not give your heart over to coveting and desperately grasping for what God has given others but not you at the moment. You can do that. You can trust the Father to raise you up at the proper time. And when we do that, we're not following the covetous patterns of Satan. We're walking by faith on the path of Christ. Because he trusted the Father through greater lack and darkness than we will ever know. He said before the cross, now is my soul troubled. Notice how Jesus does contentment there. He doesn't... um, put on a happy face and pretend that his circumstances were just peachy. But neither did he wish it away. He said, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. We can learn contentment like that. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. When it feels like our lack and our suffering is pointless. It's not. It's appointed for you by a father who loves you. And he has a purpose for you in this hour. And as you trust him, he will glorify his name. And like Jesus, he will raise you up and honor you at the proper time. That's a story that's repeated many, many times in our Christian lives. If you've walked with Christ for any amount of time, you can probably look back on a season where you were able to trust him through the emptiness. And the process was dark But then the end result was fruitful and satisfying. And that's a recurring pattern as we follow him. But it's also the overall trajectory of our lives. Our lives are always going to be lacking in some way. There's always going to be low places of some kind. And some struggles will be lifelong. And even if not, then one sense of lack is going to be quickly replaced by another. This is everyone's story in a fallen world. So regardless of how fulfilled they look on Instagram, don't buy it. Lack and hardship will come. The good news of the gospel is not just that Christ is enough to get us through a month's-long season of lack or a year's-long season of lack. The good news of the gospel is that he's enough to get us through even if we never in this life feel fulfilled in a certain way. We don't have to resort to stealing or lying or coveting Because God himself is enough. See, coveting violates both sections of the Ten Commandments. Um, In addition to having a wrong relation to people around us who we're jealous or envious of, 
we're also rejecting God because we are saying that he himself is not enough for us. But the fact of the matter is that he himself is our joy, our peace, our purpose, and he brings the fruitfulness that we long for in our lives. He wants to do that in his people right now, whatever their earthly circumstances are. And he also promises that these won't be our circumstances forever. Remember that quote? That the things we long to steal will be the paving stones in the city of God. C.S. Lewis says that these things that we covet, you know, the beauty, the memory of our own past, these are good images of what we really desire. But if they're mistaken for the thing itself, they will turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. But the real thing, the weighty, the lasting glory is promised to us. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So we stand to inherit everything. And that means that we don't need to stand staring at some green light across the bay. And so the best way to defend yourself from the temptation to take what's not yours or the temptation to steal reputation for yourself or the temptation to covet anything at all, the best defense is actually to go on the offense and in faith open your hands toward God and toward others. Jesus says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So let's pray in response to these great promises. Lord, I ask that your spirit would make the people in this room the sort of people who get after your commandments not out of uh, a sense of um, propriety or or with a, a dour attitude because we know that any focus on your potential disappointment in us, that's not what's gonna bring about obedience in our lives. So instead, we ask that you would free us from the greed and deceit and covetousness because we see more clearly than ever how you've provided everything we need. Let that good thing be what displaces the covetousness in our hearts. So remind us, God, that we have the pearl of great price. We have the treasure that's worth trading everything for. Like Moses prayed, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. So God, we ask that you would teach us to dream of our certain future that you have promised us and teach us to let all lesser dreams fall at your feet as good as they may be. We may receive some of them back from you. We may not, but we have everything we need. God, make us a people who are content. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Pastor Victor is going to come up and lead us.